0: Hey, as you're doing that, would you go ahead and grab your Bible or whatever you use to access the Scriptures. Find your way to Acts chapter 16, which is in the New Testament, where we're going to focus in on uh, verses 16 through 34. So during the summer, we've been kind of walking through a number of kind of standalone messages that have to do with different things I believe that God's wanting us to hear. And that's the case for today as well. And uh, So this morning we're going to talk about the power of worship, and I already know right away when I use the word worship, there's a default that every one of us, or not everyone, but probably the majority of us has when I use that word. When I say worship, you default to a 30-minute segment of time on a Sunday morning where there's music and you sing songs. You're like, that. that's worship. That's a fraction of what worship is. And that's part of the, the, what we're going to look at today in this story that we're going to read through together in the passage is this understanding that worship is not limited to a Sunday morning experience. Worship is everything of who we are in a, in a, in a posture that's devoted to God. So the, kind of the easiest way to kind of lay the, the, the lens of worship over our lives is this, that worship is wherever, whenever God is the priority above all else in our life. That's the easy way, easiest way to understand it. So wherever or where, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, if God is the the priority in our mind and our heart of what we're doing above all else, then that's worship. Because ultimately, it's about Him. It's not about us. That's the hardest part. We think life, we think church, we think everything is about us, but in reality, everything's ultimately about God, and that's actually how we find happiness when it isn't about us anymore. But understanding that worship is far greater than what we kind of understand it to be, and because God has set us up to be uh, beings that actually worship. Whether you know it or not, every single day of your life, you are devoted to something. You are worshiping something. It could be yourself. It could be another person. It could be a career. It could be a lot of different things. But ultimately, God has wired all of us to worship Him in everything, and that's where we see breakthrough, and that's where we see power, and that's where we see a dynamic of life that can't be explained anything other than it's God showing up in our lives, so with that understanding this morning, we're, we're going to look uh, at this passage. And, and before we start reading or working our way through it, I want to kind of set up the context. So in this big human history narrative that God has laid out for for, for mankind, which we call history is that in in the way that God has done things, the ultimate kind of pinnacle of God coming to make sure that we could be right with him and to set things right because we're broken and we're sinners, is that that Jesus' death and his resurrection, he he lives this perfect life, he dies on the cross, most of us are familiar with this, he rises from the dead, and then after he goes back to be with the Father before eventually someday he will return, I just summarized thousands of years in history in about 30 seconds, he leaves and gives his spirit to his followers to fulfill this ultimate goal of worship and glory to him in all areas and people being reconciled back to God. So I say that because we pick up in the story two guys, Paul and Silas, who have witnessed Jesus' death and his resurrection, have surrendered their lives to him, have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and now every single day of their life is no longer about them. It's about what God is up to, what his purpose is, what he's about, and how that translates to worship in their life. When we read through this passage, there's going to be one verse in particular that's going to stand out as worship, which is there's praying and there's singing hymns to God. We're like, that's worship. But really what the core of what we're going to look at today is every single verse in the passage that we're going to read is worship. Because Paul and Silas lived a life of worship, not a moment of worship. And you'll see what happens because they live their life with this perspective. Whatever, whenever, God is the priority above all else in my life. Then things happen that you and I can't dictate, control, or predict. But God's power shows up in our life. So it's the power that comes through a life that's described as worship. So if you have your Bibles, let me read the first couple verses. Verses 16 through 18. First few verses. Which tells us this about discovering the power of worship. Is that worship is powerful when it is a lifestyle, not just an event. So look at the first few verses. Says, As we were going, says Paul and Silas, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very hour. Wouldn't that be great just to be annoyed and turn around and see the power of God show up just because you got annoyed? (laughs) What's going on there? You have to understand that the lens that Paul and Silas looked at their lives through was everything is about God being the priority. Even in a a moment of Paul being annoyed by a woman who basically, she's not lying, she's telling the truth, She's, she's blowing their cover in a way. She's telling people what Paul and Silas are about, which is not a bad thing. But Paul also knows that this woman is able to do that, not by the power of God, but by the power of the enemy. And his annoyance isn't just with the fact that she keeps chirping at them, but he understands the bigger picture. There's some spiritual reality going on here. But because everything is about God being the priority, even this annoyance, God was in the middle of. How many times do you and I think that when we're annoyed by something, that can't possibly be that God could be in the middle of that. But in the middle of that, because remember the lens that Paul's looking at is everything about, is about God being the priority, he turns around and he sets this woman free because he has God's power working through him, and the result is this woman is freed from something that she could not control herself. And understanding that when you live a life that is based on worship throughout and not just worship in a setting or an event, you see everything different. Every single moment of your life is an opportunity for God to be the priority, for God to do his work, for God to show up in power. Paul and Silas could see that. They could understand that. And so the way that they saw things was probably different than you and I see. They were on their way to prayer. There was like, In a sense, they're like on their way to church and got interrupted by this annoyance that turns into this moment where God shows up in power in their life. Now, that's significant, and it will be very significant when we get to verse 25 in this passage, because when you live a life of worship during the week, when you show up on Sunday morning, the 30-minute or 40-minute segment we have of song is never a struggle for you. It's a place and a moment that you look forward to because what you experience on Sunday morning is the outflow of what you've already been experiencing all week long. It just takes on a different form. It takes on the form of music. It takes on the form of words. It takes on the form of clapping or raising your hands or kneeling. It takes on a physical form in some regard. And because of that, when you get to Sunday morning, it's very easy to do what we call worship. If you come on Sunday morning and you really struggle and you think, ah, you know, I'm not really into it, I don't like the songs, I don't know if I really like worship, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but some people actually wait till about 11.30 to show up to church because they know I'll miss the majority of worship and I'll be really there for the teaching. Again, I'm not looking at anybody or pointing any fingers. You're missing out on the bulk of what I believe God wants to do in our service. But the reason that you have that inside of you is because the majority of what you've lived during the week is you have been the priority of your own life. God hasn't been the priority. And so all of a sudden, when you show up to a context where the priority is God, it's like, oh, this doesn't feel right to me. This feels awkward. This feels weird to me. And so you can't just show up and think, oh, I'm just going to turn on the the, kind of the hit the worship button. And then I'm going to you can't do that because it's not something that's fooling you. It's like it's like showing up on a on a Sunday morning to run the L.A. marathon and not training at all. You might finish the 26.2 miles, but it might take you three days, and you're probably going to die in the process. What, what makes the ability to finish a marathon? When I, I've never completed a marathon, but I've done a half marathon, and when I trained for running a half marathon, I didn't just show up on a Sunday morning in Port, downtown Portland, Oregon, and say, okay, I'm here to run. It took about four months of serious training to reach to a point where I was running all the time. I was running three or four times a week. In fact, when I actually got to the half marathon, my, my, my biggest training session two weeks earlier was actually, I ran 14 miles, which is almost, almost a mile longer than a half marathon. So I knew in my mind I could do the distance. So when I showed up, it was, to me, yes, it was a different scene. There were thousands of people, and it was downtown Portland. But I was doing what I had done for four months. I was doing what I had simply done in training, but I was just doing it in a different venue. So the race itself wasn't that difficult for me i think the same thing is true with worship when god is the priority throughout the week when when he's kind of the layer on top of everything and you're looking at through the lens of the way you do your job the way you handle your money the way you engage your relationships everything about you god is the priority you're always keeping in mind god what are you up to what is this about how is this about you when that's present in your life on during the week it becomes an expression that goes through the ceiling on the weekend and so it's like, it's not about, Danny said earlier, it's not about the team, it's not about the songs, it's not, that's not, because sometimes, oh, I just, I can't worship there. That's not our problem, that's your problem. That's not the worship team's problem, because it's something inside of us that God's wanting to draw out, and it happens long before we ever walk into this building. If you walk in late next week, I won't look at you cross-eyed, okay, I promise. Second thing, going on in the passage, look at verses 19 through 24, the power of worship is true. It worship is powerful when when expressed in the face of struggles. So look look at how it goes on. So they've set this girl free from a demon, and now what happens? Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, that's not fair, is it? I mean, this really great thing happens. This woman, who's been probably enslaved for years, is now set free. And what do they get? They get beaten. They get stripped. They get thrown into prison. They get put in the inner cell in the stocks. This is the, what, what's interesting. when we read through things in English, in fact, we just covered just a few verses. What would be probably one of the most excruciating moments of Paul and Silas's life. You have to understand. There again, they're looking at the lens of worship. So everything's about God. He's the priority. So they're not going to flinch at this. But what happens as a result of this woman getting freed? is that when it says they stripped them, it could have been down to like what we would think is like a loincloth, but it's a good chance they were just stripped naked in front of everybody. And if that's not humiliating enough, then they're getting beat on like this mob scene that's coming after them. And then when they're beaten with rods, it's not when we think of rods, we think of sticks. Now ultimately what they were experiencing was much like what Jesus experienced when he was scourged. When you've seen that, if you've seen the passion of Christ, that, that visual that was similar to what Paul and Silas were getting. And so they they got they got ridiculed, they got stripped, they got they got humiliated, they got beaten. And then if that wasn't enough, when they were thrown into the inner cell, that was the center of the prison. It was set up in basically like solitary confinement. There was no outside light that could get in. It was it was saved for the worst criminals possible. And then when they were put in the stocks, we always think of like the medieval stocks, you know, when your hands hang there. And no, this was a stock that was designed for torture which means that they, and they said they put their feet in the stocks. The stocks were set up to separate your feet as far as possible, but you still had to stand, and they had put pressure on your ankles. So you have to picture this, what's happened to them as a result of doing this amazing thing is that their backs are ripped open, they're naked, their feet are in their stocks, they're in excruciating pain, yet their focus, we'll see when we get to verse 25, is still on Jesus. Why is that significant? Because when we get to verse 25, they will do the opposite of what I'm, I know sometimes I do in my life. When I go through bad times and I go through struggles, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, sometimes I complain. Anybody want to admit you do that too? And instead of singing praises to God, you know what I end up doing? I end up complaining, getting mad at God. And I say to God, it's not fair. It's not supposed to happen this way. The last thing I want to do is worship you right now, and make you the priority because you got me into this mess and now I have to figure out how I'm going to get out of it. Because you seem to have left and I have no help. There's those moments where something hits you and you're going through a struggle and instead of worship, you feel like God has abandoned you. I know one of those first times that really got real for me. Kim and I had just been married for a little while and my dad, he had had been going to the doctor for a couple of years and they'd been watching his PSA level and, and the word cancer had been floated a few times, prostate cancer. And I remember thinking in my mind, that won't happen. That doesn't happen to our family. Cancer happens to somebody else. It never happens to our family. We're we're the cancer-free family, right? That doesn't that kind of thing doesn't happen to us until the day my dad sat our entire family down, and he said, "I went to the doctor, and it's for real this time. I have cancer." Man, when he said that, I just I remember thinking, "God, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait! You got the wrong script. You messed up here. This is not supposed to happen to my family. It's not supposed to happen to my dad." And and then I remember the days and weeks after that, really struggling with this reality that that that. God, you let my dad have cancer. But then I watched my dad go through surgery and treatment and radiation and the long-term impact and I watched him go through all of that and I, what it was so amazing was not all of what happened. In fact, this is over, this is about 22, 23 years ago. He's cancer-free today. Full remission. Doesn't have an ounce of it in his body. But I remember I watched him go through it and he didn't even flinch. He was so focused and it wasn't living in denial that he had cancer. It was this that whether I have cancer or I'm cancer-free, Jesus is still the priority of my life. His attitude didn't change. He still worshiped God. He still prayed. He, still, I was, he was the pr- same person before cancer as he was with cancer. And I remember looking, I thought, he's got something that I don't have. He's got a piece, and I know what it was. It's because God was the priority in everything and every part of his life. And God can do the same in us. He's not asking us to live in denial of our struggles because he knows we're human and he knows we're broken. But there's something that happens when he becomes the priority where we worship him instead of complaining and thinking he's abandoned us. Because there's something of his power and his divine nature that wants to come into that moment, but it won't if we complain and we turn our backs on him, which he never will turn his back on us, even in the midst of our struggles. Now, when thinking about that in that context... I want to read something to you that is probably very familiar to you. In fact, if you read through the the Bible in the Old Testament, you read through the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is all based on this. It's all based on this concept that life is tough, but I still worship God. That's David's mind. If you want to sum up 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, that's it. Life is tough, but God is still on the throne. That's the theme. It kind of waves, goes through waves. But most of you know the song or have heard the old, old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And usually you sing that at a funeral. Or you sing that at a low moment of life. And the reason for that is because the context of that hymn is amazing. Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn at the lowest moment of his life. His son had died. His business was bankrupt because the Chicago fire had ruined him. And f- his four daughters went down with the ship and died. That's a bad season of life. But in the middle of that, this is what He wrote. So if you would just close your eyes, listen to what came from this man's heart who was still devoted to God, even though he had lost everything. He wrote this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And then listen to this last stanza. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. (sighs) How do you write that in the midst of the worst moment of your life? It's when God is the priority no matter what you go through. That you see that even in in the brokenness of your life, God is still at work. God is still doing what he wants to do. And at the end, ultimately, of all things, if your life is dialed into him, you will be with him forever, and he will return for you. That's understanding worship as a lifestyle, not just a moment, not just an event. Then the third thing. Now we look at verse 25, kind of the centerpiece of the passage. Worship is powerful when we focus on God, not others. So so listen to what happens here verse 25 about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in the prison and the prisoners were listening to them C- Can we just be honest for a moment not that we're dishonest at other moments but would that be your response if you were in their situation First thing, yeah, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to sing praises to God, even though if I can't, I'm trying to lift my hands, but my feet are in the stocks, and my back is ripped open, and I'm in the inner cell, and I can't see anything because I'm in solitary confinement, but I'm still going to worship God. That might be the last thing we do, but, but what's happening here is that all, the other prisoners can't see them, but they can hear them. It wasn't as though Paul and Silas turned to each other and said, let's have a little quiet worship service together. They were belting it out. They were in a completely different part of the prison, and other prisoners are hearing them sing the praises of God in the middle, and they know what has happened to them. They know what's going on. They're aware of it. Other prisoners are aware of what's happening, and they're listening. So you have to figure there has to be probably one of two responses that are going on amongst the prisoners. One is it could be, you guys are fools. We know what's happened to you, and and because you know the way Rome works, you guys are probably going to die tomorrow, and you're doing what? You're praying. You're still staying faithful to your God who is completely abandoned you. You guys are fools. And then maybe there's the other side that's listening and and actually being inspired. These guys have gone through this, and they're probably going to lose their life tomorrow, but what are they still doing? They're still praising their God that they would have that kind of capacity to stay focused on God even when they're in the worst moment of their life. You know, one thing I can say with confidence Paul and Silas did not care what other people thought of them. They weren't worried about what other people were hearing or not hearing. Their worship and their prayer was focused on one person and one person only, and that was God. That was Jesus Himself. Because they didn't worry about other prisoners. They weren't worrying about how they sounded. They weren't worrying if they're going to get ridiculed or if it sounded good. In fact, we didn't even know. Maybe they had really horrible voices. It didn't matter. They sang loud enough that everyone could hear. Why is that significant? Whether it be in the context of a gathering like a church service or when we're living our life during the week, how many times do you and I make decisions based on what other people think of us? If we're honest with ourselves, far too many of our decisions are motivated by what people think. We, before we'll act, we'll think, how is, we won't even say it, but we just instinctively think, how is that person gonna respond to me? Are they gonna love me? Are they gonna reject me? Are they gonna accept me? Are they going to make fun of me? What am I going to do? And you know what? That happens on a Sunday morning when we gather for worship. You think twice about you about what you are doing internally and how that's going to come out physically in, in the way you sing, if you lift your hands, if you come to the front and kneel. Whatever you do, you think about other people in the room. Now listen, there is a balance. In worship, in a corporate gathering, we always balance. We never want to become a distraction for others that pulls their attention off of God because we're reacting so strongly that we're drawing attention to ourselves. But I'll be honest, I don't think our church has that problem. I think we have the opposite problem. And that is we're so worried if I sing too loud, someone's going to hear me sing off-key. You mean singing with the voice that God gave you that he's longing to hear and worship that you are holding back from him because you're so worried about the person next to you, by the way, who sings off-key as well? Or if I raise my hands, they're going to think I'm like one of those fanatics, gets kind of crazy, or if I feel pressed to really go to the front and get on my hands and knees and really worship God, people are going to think i got junk in my life and they're going to know that I'm a sinner. Oh, newsflash, all of us do. But don't tell me that doesn't go on on a Sunday morning. I watch it happen, and I watch moments in this room when we're in worship, we're actually, I've watched almost everyone in the room. I can't tell, I can't read minds, but I can feel in the room where the majority of us have completely forgotten about all of the other people in the room. Not, not, not in a rude way, but in a way that I'm so uninhibited now because it's just me and Jesus. And I'll stand back in the back and I'll be in awe. And that, when that happens, when you forget about yourself, it leads other people to forget about themselves. Paul and Silas did not care about what other people thought about their voices, even the fact that they would get ridiculed. And think about that for a moment. Think about what would that look like if you really were able to truly worship without worrying about what everybody else thought about you. You know, this analogy has been used to death, but I'm serious. It's true. You may go home today and you're going to watch maybe an NFL preseason game, which means absolutely nothing. But if your team is playing and you're pretty passionate, when they score a touchdown, guess what you're going to do? You're going to jump off the couch and you're maybe going to raise your hands and you're going to scream a little bit, right? But come to church and you're like, oh, no, I can't do that. I might look like a fanatic. Oh, which, by the way, short for fanatic is the word fan. But think about that for a moment. There's passages throughout Scripture where people had to, were challenged with this dynamic about what other people thought about them. But those who can get beyond it realize that all that matters is what God thinks about me. And God has already told me what he thinks about me. He loves me and he accepts me through mercy and grace from Jesus' death on the cross. That's all that matters. And he longs for his people to worship him. And then there's a fourth reality of discovering the power of worship. And that is that worship is powerful because it brings breakthrough in our lives. So going on in the story, look at verse 26 to 28 says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's uh, bonds unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners, prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. What's happening? God's starting to break through. God's starting to show up. God's doing something that Paul and Silas couldn't do on their own. They didn't have great, a great plan to escape. They didn't. But God was opening a way of escape for them. But what's crazy is that even though the doors are open, they're not going anywhere. And none of the other prisoners are. All the ones that were listening to them sing, the earthquake hits, and now they're all sitting. Why? Because they all know that something powerful is happening in this moment. That earthquake has caused all. Can you imagine? We're in Southern California, we know earthquakes. Earthquakes are destructive. This earthquake did one primary thing. We don't know what else it did, but we know one thing it did for sure. What did it do? It caused all the cell doors to blow open. That's pretty strange, isn't it? Because earthquakes here, if an earthquake hits strong enough to blow a cell door open, which is locked, it's pretty much strong enough to blow down the prison that holds the cell doors, right? But the prison's still standing because God has showed up to do something powerful. So they're anticipating this. There's breakthrough that's happening for Paul and Silas but there's breakthrough that's happening for other prisoners and eventually what we'll see for this jailer and his family why is this significant because I'm convinced Paul and Silas were not praying and singing hymns to God because they thought there was an earthquake coming they had no idea remember the danger of knowing a Bible story is that you and I know the beginning the middle and the end they didn't know that they weren't sitting there, okay, God, bring the earthquake now, set the, the, the doors open so that we can be free. They didn't have that even, that wasn't even a category. They weren't praying for an earthquake. They were just worshiping God. So whether the, the cell door stayed closed and there was no earthquake or whether there was an earthquake and they blew the doors open, it didn't matter. Paul and Silas were still going to worship God. Then God, as a result, brings this breakthrough and starts to set people free, which is which is Amazing. That is a faithfulness that says, I am going to contend for and believe for and worship God no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the outcome, because I believe ultimately God will bring breakthrough in my life the way he wants to bring breakthrough. That's faithfulness. That's determination. That's commitment, even when we're going through difficult times. I have a picture on my lock screen for my phone. You can't see it, but it's, well, there's a lot of notifications there I have to clear too, but anyway, that's another thing. But on my phone, every time I pick up my phone, there's a picture of Pastor David and his family from Haiti. In fact, Pastor David, is, he's the pastor who we helped build the church for in our last team uh, last month. And Pastor David, and you've heard, you heard the team share some of his story, but I have that picture on my phone for two reasons. As a reminder to pray for him and his family and the church there, but also as a reminder to me when I want to complain and say, God, where are you? Because Pastor David's story is amazing. For seven years, he prayed that God would send somebody to partner with him to rebuild his church. You know that the church that that we, our team, built, by the way, which was tin roof and posts, doesn't even have any walls yet, which they think is the best thing ever, because it is. You don't need all this to worship Jesus and gather together. But, But that is the fourth version of Pastor David's church. Because the first three that he built got blown over by hurricanes. And he kept rebuilding. But for seven years, there's a main road that runs through Onaville. He would sit out on the roadway and he would pray, God, would you send missionaries to come partner with me to build a church? Seven years. I've been to Haiti. You know how many missionaries go through the main thoroughfare of uh, Onaville every day in the summertime? You could probably count at least 20 teams, if not more. If you've been to Haiti, they're all in the airport. They all wear their matching t-shirts. You know where they come from. They're all saving Haiti, right? Team knows that. And he prayed for seven years and he watched van after van drive by until eventually God connected him with Pastor Poise and with Greg Barshaw and Connect Two Ministries and then our church was able to partner to build in that. You know what's crazy is even in the middle of all that, the team was telling me that in the morning before the team would start and in the evening when the team was done, Pastor David would show up with some people from his church and they would pray and worship before and they would pray and worship after and then when the team would leave and go back and sleep during the night, Pastor David would sleep on site every night. Because he knew this was the breakthrough and the fulfillment of God working. And he had seven years. I give up after seven minutes. Seven years he prayed for that. Why? Because he was convinced that God would break through as he continued to make God in the, prior- the priority of his life and his church. And today, it's the, the team said they had a four-hour service. We would freak out at four hours. Four-hour service of church member after church member standing under this tin roof and these posts saying, God is faithful. Look what he's done for us. See, that's what it looks like when we contend for God to be the priority in every area of our life. We believe that he's going to break through. Paul and Silas knew that God was going to break through somehow. It could have been the fact that they were going to die the next day. Remember what Paul said? To live is Christ. To die is what? Gain. So I'm convinced even at that moment, Paul's like, if I die tomorrow, I get to see Jesus face to face. I get to be out of this. I don't have to suffer anymore. But if tomorrow I'm alive, that means there's more that Christ has for me to do in this world. He is the priority in my life. And then the final thing, look at verses 29 to 34. Worship is powerful because it points people to God. So starting in verse 29, it says, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You know, I said this a few weeks ago when we talked about Daniel, but it's the same through Paul and Silas. I can guarantee that was not their plan. They didn't have a plan. They're just there sharing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, seeing the power of God come to bear on a a slave girl who's been set free, they didn't think, okay, here's a great strategy. We'll set the the slave girl free. We'll get mocked, stripped, and beaten, thrown in their cell, and then we're going to have a worship service. The earthquake's going to come. The jailer and his family are going to freak out. Then they're going to get saved, and we're going to baptize all of them. I can guarantee you that wasn't Paul's plan. But what was Paul's priority? God. That was his priority. Whatever you're going to do, you are the priority in this moment. You are above all else. Your glory, what you want to do, your purpose. And this is the result of that perspective. Because God was up to something in Paul. In fact, we know that to be true because if you read the entire chapter, some of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, in Acts 16, the first few verses tell you that Paul actually got two no's before he ended up in this city, which is Philippi. He was doing what God called him to do. God said, not there, not there. Why? Because you're going here. So Paul is just saying, okay, God, wherever you want me to go. And then he shows up, and God does this amazing thing. That's why we have this book in the New Testament called what the book of Philippians is based on the church at Philippi, which started in this chapter. God had that all at work, but Paul didn't know. He was just simply, God is the priority in my life. When you and I don't worry about the outcome, and we make God the priority and everything God takes care of the outcome. A few weeks ago, when we talked about Daniel and his ability to trust God. Remember, Daniel's strategy was what? I am going to make God the priority. So even if they tell me I can't pray to God and I'm supposed to pray to the king, I'm still going to pray to God because that's what I've always done. If you remember the story, what ends up happening is because he violates the law, he ends up in the the den with lions, and then God protects him. And then ultimately, at the end of that story, what happens is the king, who is a pagan king, sends out a decree to his entire kingdom, which what we understand historically was most of the known world at that time saying, we're going to worship Daniel's God, because this is what Daniel's God does. Was that Daniel's plan? No, you know what Daniel's plan was? I'm going to pray three times a day to God, because that's what I always do, because he's the priority in everything that I do. Now, why is that significant? Because you need to look at your life through a different lens. We need to look at our lives through a lens of worship. Now, again, again, not 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship. That whatever, whenever, however, God is the priority in my life above everything. God, what are you up to in my suffering? What are you up to in my family? What are you wanting to show people your glory in, in my city, in my school, in my friendships? Everything. God is the priority. And when God is the priority, guess what happens? This kind of stuff, God shows up in power and does what you and i can 't do on our own, and if we 'll just submit ourselves to that, you and I could see God do amazing things so i 'm going to ask the worship team to come and and join me and in, in that we 're going to conclude with with worship a couple of songs, but in closing, I, I want to tell one last story that that I think will kind of give us some context because again, I think sometimes we We don't see how this necessarily translates to where God is the priority in everything. So the staff is reading a book right now. The title is Rumors of God, and it's by uh, two really good authors, Darren Whitehead and John Tyson. And uh, both of them are leaders. Uh, One of them is in New York and one's in Chicago. And they were telling a story about a gal named Catherine. Catherine's a part of... uh, Darren's Church in Chicago area, and so he's telling a story of Catherine. Catherine was a makeup artist, and, and um, she just grew up loving to do makeup and got really good at it and got some schooling, and so she was doing that, and so she, she was kind of going through her life and kind of working her job and doing what she's supposed to do, but she just felt like there was something missing from her faith, like there's got to be something more. I'm just kind of living this humdrum kind of faith, and I don't know what what it's, there's got to be something more. So someone approached her one time and said, hey, you know, you're really good at makeup. You should come on a trip with me to Costa Rica. She goes, because I work with an organization in Costa Rica that helps prostitutes find their way out of sex slavery. And she said, one of the ways that we do that is we help them to to feel dignity in their life. And so part of what that is, is for them to learn how to use makeup in a way that isn't seductive, that isn't a part of their job. And so she said, you should come and and use the skills you have to, to serve these women. So she said, okay, I'll go. So she's, she went and she, she was amazed at how much impact through doing makeup for a woman who only knew how to use makeup as a tool of sex, to use makeup as a way to enhance the natural beauty that God had given them. And so she came back from that trip just transformed. She felt like she had meaning and purpose, and there was a whole new dimension to her faith. And so then she asked the question if, if that can happen for me in Costa Rica, what does that mean for my life now? So here's what she did this is crazy she got a a job in a strip club in Chicago. And in that strip club, she got a job as a makeup artist for the strippers. It's the last place you think, oh yeah, that's a godly occupation. But she knew that even though this is in Costa Rica, the women in that club were not much different than the women in Costa Rica. So she committed to do makeup for them. So every night she would show up to the club and she would do makeup and she would be kind and compassionate and show love and so one night she decided you know what there's some teachings that she had had from her church and so she put a box of CDs in the dressing room where the girls were getting dressed and getting ready and, and she just left it there and for two weeks nobody touched it and then two weeks went by and a girl named Rebecca grabbed one of the CDs and took it with her a couple days later she came back to Catherine and she said are there any more of those she goes because what, what that guy was talking about that I know I need that she said, oh yeah, there's a bunch more. And so she, Rebecca grabbed a few more. And then since Rebecca grabbed them, then a couple of the other ladies, they started grabbing CDs. And all these ladies who were stripping are listening to message about God's love, his grace and his mercy and how it can transform their souls. So eventually Rebecca is so interested in this God. She asked Catherine, can I come to your church? And Catherine says, absolutely. Long story short, in the book, they describe a scene where Catherine is sitting next to Rebecca and next to Rebecca are all her friends who are stripping and all of their friends from the club sitting in church on a Sunday morning for one reason, Rebecca was getting baptized that morning. After that baptism, Rebecca stayed in the strip club, but you know what she stopped doing? She stopped stripping. She stopped dancing. And you know what she started doing? Catherine taught her how to do makeup. And so now her job switched from dancing to now she was in the middle of the dressing room with Catherine. The both of them would put makeup on the girls before they went out to dance. And this is what's crazy. You know what they did in that, in that, in that dressing room? Because they both had such influence in the lives of those women, I knew that God loved them. Every single night when girls were getting ready to go out and dance and to strip, they were playing worship music. And the girls said, that's fine please do that. I I tell that story because Catherine made a decision in her ho-hum, boring faith that God has to be the priority in all areas of my life. It started in Costa Rica, but it found its fulfillment in a strip club in Chicago. I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know what God has gifted you. I don't know what you're trained to do, but I know one thing's for sure. If God comes becomes the priority in every aspect of your life, you know what'll happen. Other people's lives will be changed because you will be present and you will be living out worship and you will be demonstrating that there is a God who loves people, not because you're a great evangelist and you're telling people the gospel, but you're living in such a way that God can be seen in your life as the priority. And the result will be people want to know what in the world is going on in you. And then there'll be stories like Catherine and Rebecca when God is the priority above all things. So would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We thank you that Paul and Silas established in their life that however, whenever, you were always the priority. You were always the lens they looked through to see what you were up to and how you could be glorified. And because of that, Lord, a Philippian jailer and his family got saved. An entire city was put in an uproar because a slave girl was freed. And we know even in that story, Lord, that a church that became one of the the best churches in the New Testament got planted all because two guys said, Jesus, you're number one in my life. You're the priority. So, Lord, for us today in everything, would you allow us to see our lives differently? Lord, would you put the lens of worship over us today so that when we leave this place, when we see our families, our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, everything, Lord Jesus, you are the priority, and we will ask the question, God, what are you up to? How can I make you look good? How can I give you the priority? How can I give you my attention? How can I give you my focus so that you can, by your power, do what you want to do through my life? So Lord Jesus, help us to be people who live a life of worship so that people's lives will be touched. But Lord, that when we gather our worship would not just be for 30 minutes, but our worship would be 24-7 because you're the priority here, you're the priority there, you're the priority everywhere in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.